This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. 2018 is shaping up to be an unpredictable year in Colorado politics. There are so many people running for governor, it's easy to lose track. And the parties have a big change to deal with. A new law allows the state's 1.2 million unaffiliated voters to vote in a primary. Today and tomorrow, we're going to hear from the state chairs of the two major parties. Tomorrow, Republican Jeff Hayes. Today, it's Democrat Morgan Carroll. She's a former president of the state Senate from Aurora. And uh, Chairwoman, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. This new state law, which allows unaffiliated voters to vote in a primary, is supposed to get more centrists involved in choosing candidates, perhaps push the parties away from ideological extremes. Do you think it will have that effect? My hope is it'll push the candidates and campaigns to be more relevant. When you have a small group of people picking, even more so than left, right, center, you get in a bubble where you reinforce each other's same issues. And I think it's actually going to be a healthy thing to have all these new folks coming in, getting engaged earlier in the process, weighing in on who the candidates are and helping shape not just who's running, but what are the platform issues we should be talking about? Are you already seeing signs of that, that the issues are appealing to a broader crowd? Or do you think this is a pretty lefty primary so far? I'm seeing signs in so far as looking at a a huge groundswell of new activism and participation people who had been green candidates before. And one of the new changes with the Democratic Party is typically you look to Democrats to volunteer with the Democratic Party. We're already seeing and welcoming a lot of unaffiliateds getting in to get engaged, particularly if they're concerned about the direction that either Trump or uh, the Congress in D.C. is headed. Okay, so that's the voters. But what about the candidates? Is it changing the candidates' message, do you think? It's a little too soon to tell. Um, I do think that the candidates and the party and everybody's doing some soul-searching inventory about whether or not they've been connecting to voters. So I'm seeing a deeper dig to try and make sure that the candidates themselves are trying to be responsive to the the issues that are truly on people's minds. Like what? Well, so, for example, we've had a habit of relying a lot on D.C. consultants, and they'll pull an issue and they'll say, hey, choice is the number one issue. And then you'll see an entire campaign about choice or choice being abortion, you say. Right. Reproductive rights or something like that. Or uh, we'll come out and realize, hey, okay, the number one issue that you're seeing in a poll is how abysmally unpopular Trump is. And then suddenly everybody's Donald Trump in the polls. That type of thing happens in a campaign when you rely so heavily on consultants. And I think what the party and what candidates are starting to do is realize you better be taking your cue directly from the voters. And maybe you can partly tie that to the increased ability of unaffiliateds to be weighing in earlier on the process. And if you do that this year and next, what issues rise to the top? Clearly, I think it would be looking for the opportunity and the freedom to basically live the life you want. That can be whether your wages are covering your bills, um, whether you can afford to get 24-7 care for aging parents. It's the cost of child care, student debt. Um, it's uh, basically, can you live the life you want? Can you afford to pay your bills? Do you have the freedom to love and live as you want? And that covers most of what's on people's minds, although I think there's a lot of concern about international diplomacy and new on our horizon are people truly concerned about the threat of nuclear war um, and whether they see that this country is actually growing enemies rather than allies. Freedom 
it's, it sounds like an awfully almost Republican, even libertarian message coming from Democrats. I believe freedom is a democratic word and a democratic concept. I'm not willing to cede that to Republicans. We've fought for the freedom to have fairness and non-discrimination in the workplace, the freedom to organize in the workplace, the freedom to drink clean water or breathe clean air or have rights in the workplace or love or marry whom you choose. Those are freedoms that we uh, go to the founding of this country, and I certainly believe that freedom is a democratic concept. I want to go back to this idea of the change in the primary. For those who are unfamiliar with the new state law, uh, here's briefly how it works. Before the primary election uh, next June, uh, unaffiliated voters will get two ballots, one with Democratic candidates, the other with Republicans. And if they want to, they can choose one of the party ballots and vote in that primary. Uh, What they can't do is mix their vote, that is, vote in some of the Republican races and some of the Democratic contests. And as we'll hear tomorrow from the GOP chairman in Colorado, uh, the Republicans may opt out and go with caucuses instead. Uh, I want to talk about the gubernatorial primary in particular. For Democrats, they've been really rare in Colorado in recent memory. Um, It is early in the gubernatorial campaign, but this is clearly a very big field What do you as party chair tell those candidates to keep them from chopping each other up so badly in the primary that the winner is potentially fatally weakened for the general? That's such a good question. We've never seen this many primaries, gubernatorial, congressional, up and down the ticket. It's a trend we're seeing. And as party chair, if we uh, annihilate each other in the primary, there's nothing left to compete with in the general. So as chair, I basically make two main points. One, you're running on competing for your best vision for Colorado. And if you're beating each other up, you're not doing that. Have you said to the candidates, don't go negative? Yes. Or is that just inevitable? You've said that. And, and, and there will be more of a proactive outreach on that. Why? And from their perspective, let's say they all assume they're going to be the one coming out of the primary. They need the voters who supported the other primary candidates If they are going to win a general election, the candidates themselves, if they think about this for a moment, it's not just that we would like an elevated discourse. It's an act of self-sabotage because the moment that primary is over, if you attack that candidate, you're really always, in essence, kind of attacking their supporters. It's going to make it really hard for them to turn around and get on board to back you and your vision for the state if you've been negative and toxic and basically tearing them down. Do you have teeth to enforce this? I suppose not really. It's a it's a gentleman's or gentlewoman's agreement. It is a gentlewoman's agreement trying to appeal to our better angels and an increased sense of purpose. <laughs> but you're making that point very actively with the campaigns. And let's talk about a couple of the candidates. There's Congressman Jared Polis of Boulder, a millionaire several times over. He has a big financial advantage. He's from arguably the most liberal part of the state and has a strong liberal voting record. Can your best funded candidate overcome that liberal record to win a purple, a profoundly purple state? I think so. I think uh, so with the whole bumper crop of candidates we've got, voters in this day and age focus somewhat on the candidate. But the candidate, whether it's Jared Polis or Kerry Kennedy or Noel Ginsburg or any of the other nine candidates that we've got, Uh, If they are willing to focus on the needs of rural Colorado, urban, suburban, um, people in every spectrum of life, I think that they will – 
I think the voters will look past simply what region someone's coming from if but the bolder, our the bolder the label is awfully strong, isn't it? Well, you may be asking the wrong person. I grew up in Boulder, so <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, no doubt they've used it as an attack against Senator Udall before on races like this. But let's be clear, they'll find something to attack over, whether it's where you're from in the state. Um, campaigns have become so vitriolic and so negative that every single person, whoever comes out of our primary, will be facing a pretty impactful negative attacks. So while there may not be uh, as many negative messages in the primary you expect come the general, that will change. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, today and tomorrow, we're speaking with the heads of the state parties in Colorado. So tomorrow, it's Republican Jeff Hayes. Right now, it's Democrat Morgan Carroll. And uh, I want to talk about one other candidate, the most recent entry into the governor's race on the Democratic side. That's Lieutenant Governor Donna Lynn. Now, her boss, Governor Hickenlooper, has not endorsed her formally, but he has been very public in praising her. Does that tip the scales towards her, do you think? I think... um, Or maybe that's just incumbent advantage in some regard. I think her, one of her strongest assets will be her familiarity with the job. My personal opinion is endorsements don't carry, even direct or indirect, don't carry the weight that they once did. And you say that as someone who has very recently run for office, by the way. I do. I do. I mean, that's from an era of who's who. And I think people are more interested in knowing what you're about. Um, So we have, obviously, a surprisingly large field of amazing candidates. She is the most recent to jump in. What we're seeing her lead with is her experience with a steady hand of having done a good job running uh, all the different departments in the state of Colorado. And for people who like the direction Colorado has been headed, I think under Governor Hickenlooper, I think they will find a lot to like in her candidacy. Who on the Republican side is the biggest threat in the governor's race? That is to say, if, if you're helping a candidate game the general election, who do well, you imagine is, is in the sights? I think uh, Victor Mitchell's ability to self-fund makes him a significant threat. Um, it's been very dynamic because they keep tripping over each other to race further to the right. And at some point, I think they're all in trouble coming back to a general because they have been running further and further to the right. I think Victor Mitchell, his ability to self-fund is going to help him. He's a former state lawmaker. He's a former state lawmaker. I think having the Scott Robinson, the nephew of Mitt Romney, and he's going to have connections that'll help him. I think having um, Walker Stapleton is, of course, a, a, a relative of the Bushes. I think that network will be helpful for him. And also, I think those all come with well-funded networks. I think So we are concerned because that comes with a network and with some money. That said, I think that's also a bygone era, if you will, of politics of usual that at this moment in time may not serve them well in the Colorado electorate. It's just too soon to see. Walker Stapleton, state treasurer now. Uh, Colorado Democrats were deeply split last year. Uh, Some of the disputes became very public even on these airwaves between supporters of Bernie Sanders and of Hillary Clinton. Uh, there's still a Sanders faction that wants to move the party left and says that, that the Democrats' failure to do so in the last election may have led to Hillary Clinton's defeat. Uh, how are you addressing those ideological divisions in the party? Listening. 
That sounds really basic, Uh but (laughs) there is no moving forward if we don't sit down and listen and learn from mistakes past. I think we need to understand the Hillary campaign and the Bernie campaign as symbols of deeper issues and deeper divides that were existing in this country. Give me an example. Um, So I think for a lot of the folks in the Sanders campaign, they wanted to feel um, like they could have a bigger say in the direction of the Democratic Party of generations past, a time when you could do backdoor closed deals and it was feeling like it was you know, they were progressive, they were passionate, they were willing to get involved, but the process seemed dated. And that wasn't Hillary Clinton's fault. But the party itself, and I want to take responsibility for this on the party, both at the state and national level, the party itself has been in pretty significant need of updating. And how are you doing that? In Colorado. The short version is, is we need to radically rethink a view of us as a club, and more as a movement. We can't just be about recruiting, training, and electing Democrats and keeping score at the end. We are in a moment in time where we need to pull in everybody. We need to include more. We need to listen more. We need to learn more. It's interesting you use the word movement because I really think that's how Trump referred to his swell of support. Our movement is for those of us, and we've seen record participation with what's happening, but I'll tell you for everybody that's getting involved, they feel that everything we have fought for, for the last 100 years that represents progress, our constitutional democracy, people's rights, our environment, I mean everything, whether it's social security or even having public education in an era of Betsy DeVos, is profoundly and acutely under attack. So we right now, whether someone's initial issue uh, was really racial equality or workplace equality, what we're seeing is a lot of intersectionality between causes. Not all of them are even directly active in the Democratic Party, but I say movement because we need the more the merrier. If someone is getting active over uh, defending the rights of immigrants and dreamers, we're going to be right there with them. If people are showing up on the Women's March, uh, because frankly, a lot of people have pretty serious reason to be concerned about moving radically backwards for women in this country, uh, we are connecting in a way that isn't just the usual party bylaws, party meeting, a party vote, which can be too bureaucratic and not agile enough to meet the moment. The Democrats, though, may have a lot on the line uh, at the state level and at the federal level. I mean, basically, nationally, it's a minority party at this point. Uh, they control one chamber of the state legislature that could flip in the coming election. Uh, And then there's redistricting and reapportionment on the line. So some scorekeeping to some extent will be important here, right? Yeah, it's we don't stop doing the essential work of what we need to do, but we need to remind ourselves why. We're in a moment, especially with young voters and unaffiliated voters, simply saying just vote Democratic because you need to vote Democratic down the ballot isn't good enough. So it's why. Why are we going to fight to get the majority in the state house, the state Senate? Why is it important that we make sure we keep the governor's office? And why do we need to keep an eye on gerrymandering to make sure we're actually increasing rather than decreasing competitive districts for the state legislature and for congressional districts? 
Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Morgan Carroll of Aurora chairs the state Democratic Party. She's also a former president of the Colorado State Senate. And as I said, tomorrow we'll speak with Republican state chair Jeff Hayes. We are basically drying out the Great Plains. That's a quote from a scientist at Colorado State University. And those plains include eastern Colorado. A huge swath of the country from South Dakota to Texas relies on one giant aquifer. The Ogallala has slowly drained over half a century. That's a problem for farmers and for the food supply. For fish, too. Kurt Fausch is the researcher I just quoted there. He's a stream ecologist and professor emeritus at CSU. And uh, Kurt, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Just how much agriculture depends on the Ogallala Aquifer? Oh, I think uh, somewhere in the order a sixth of the world's grain is produced out of the Great Plains area there. So it's a, it's a huge piece of the world's grain supply comes from the Ogallala. Yeah, it supports a lot of cattle too, doesn't it? Uh, yes, many of the the uh, much of the hamburger we eat and steak that we love to eat comes from um, Colorado beef that's finished in big feedlots, and much of that corn is grown in our state. I feel like we need a really quick primer on what an aquifer is. So it's a layer of rock deep underground that sort of. Uh, sponge-like, and it has stored up water for centuries. Is that about right? Yeah, much much, more, much longer than centuries. Actually, the Rocky Mountains arose several times and were eroded away, and all that sand and gravel was washed out onto the eastern plains of Colorado, making this thick bed of sand and gravel and broken up limestone that acts as a sponge, as you say. So um, it uh, it's what the farmers drill their wells into, or the big crop circles that you see when you fly over that land, and those crop circles uh, pump uh, 500 to 1,000 gallons a minute um, to produce the, the largely corn is what's grown in those crop circles. In Colorado, the Ogallala runs along the state's eastern edge. How deep down is it, just out of curiosity? You know, <laughs> that... I don't know exactly. I'm okay. I'm not a hydrologist, actually more of a fish biologist, but it's it's several hundred feet deep that they're drilling into. And then there's bedrock underneath that that, that uh, basically creates the bottom of this big sponge, as you say, of uh, sand and gravel and broken up limestone. And so about 50 years ago or so is when a lot of wells started to be drilled into the aquifer. Not, not that long ago, I guess. No, um, the... Center pivot sprinkler was invented after World War II, and it, it's created a real boon for agriculture because you can produce crops, you know, consistently year after year, whereas our rain um, is inconsistent. Uh, and so it's allowed the farmers to, to produce uh, a large amount of food to feed all of us on the planet. I think Yuma County, <clears throat> in where, where we've worked on the rivers, is usually second or third in the nation for corn production. It's a big county, but it, it also produces a lot of corn. I like how one writer put it, that mining the Ogallala has untethered farming from both weather and climate. That is to say, we've, we've been able to grow things like corn, uh, a plethora of it, despite the fact that surface water is not readily available. Yeah, that's right. It would be difficult in... Um, over much of the Ogallala to um, 
divert surface water, that is stream water. But as you know, the this aquifer supplies the rivers that are on the Great Plains, and that's really the work that we did was to look at how those rivers are shrinking through time. So um, you mentioned that, that the wells started to be drilled in the 1950s and really took off in the 1960s through the 80s. And as a result, then, this pumping of the aquifer also depletes the water that supplies the streams and rivers, huh. basically wherever the groundwater, this water under the ground is higher than the bed of a river, then the river flows. And so um, what we calculated in this work that we did was that from 1950 to 2010, that 60-year period, for a big piece of the central Ogallala that's about 200 miles by 200 miles, um, eastern Colorado, western Kansas, southwestern Nebraska, kind of this big 200-mile by 200-mile area, that we then lost 350 miles of streams and rivers in that 60-year period oh my from goodness. 1950 to 2010. And, and again, that's the connection between these deep-down aquifers and the surface water. It's a strong connection. And was, was that a surprise to you? Uh, not Really, we were actually following up on work we had done in one basin in eastern Colorado, the Arikari River, which uh, flows east through Yuma and Ray, or near Yuma and Ray, Colorado, and uh, that's part of this larger area that we modeled. So we had a very detailed study of that river and found that, for example, it was about 70 miles long, um, but by, oh, the latter part of the last decade, around 2007, it had it would only be 10 miles long during the dry part of the summer. So we've lost, you know, uh, six-sevenths of the river, I guess you'd say. Yeah, my goodness. And so you're really connecting what it means to deplete an aquifer for streams and for rivers. And it's a it's an uh, awfully direct connection. Yeah, that's right. And and the, the goal of this this paper that you're talking about, the study that we just did, yeah. was to look into the future. So what's going to happen during the next 50 years up to 2060? And we found that uh, pump, pumping has leveled off, uh, but still we're, as I said, we've lost 350 miles in this 200 by 200 mile area. And we're projecting then that we'll lose another 175 miles of river and streams in that region. And this is certainly on the minds of farmers in the area. I think of Rod Lenz, his family farms and ranches in northeastern Colorado. He's in charge of the potatoes. Fortunately for him, his farms aren't on the perimeter of the aquifer where it's really drying up, but he's still feeling the effects of the depletion. You know, farmers wake up at night worrying about one thing or another. Most of the time I worry about water. When I wake up in the middle of the night, it's like, what do we do? For us, the water is there for a a good generation, but we would be foolish not to learn from the fringes now and take action now to try to be more sustainable. How bad are things on the aquifer? I mean, he says that there might just be another generation of farming that can be sustained. Yeah, again, I'm not a groundwater hydrologist, so I can't speak directly to that. I can talk about the fishes. Sure. Um, Let's talk uh, about the fish because they're an yeah. important uh, population here to consider too. Yeah. So going into, the, as I said, we'll lose another 175 miles of river. And what we're really doing is 
is not only drying streams up, but changing the large ones to small ones. And so, as you can imagine, there are certain species that need larger rivers, larger streams and small rivers that occurred there. And those are the ones we're losing. So we're, we're basically losing populations of species there in the Western Great Plains. What species? Um, oh, I, that's part of the issue is that these are, I would say, not species that people think about fishing for. They're not walleye or certainly not trout. And so they tend to be a group of small uh, members of the perch family called darters, uh, suckers, minnows. Um, they're fairly unique. And I would say that uh, they're also widespread, though. They they uh, occur farther to the east. So uh, as we lose them, for some of them, eventually we'll lose the last populations, but we'll also lose populations that are adapted to the Great Plains. Hmm. Some of them occur all the way to New York, New York State, but you couldn't really bring those fish here to the Great Plains because the fish here have special adaptations that allow them to live through the harsh summers and and uh, the drying. And what would be the larger effect of that? Losing, are these keystone species? Could it be that they're the canary in the coal mine that uh, indicate more wildlife loss is possible? Yeah, certainly they're uh, eaten by wading birds. Um, but I think maybe a larger issue for me is that, you know, it's not only fish that need rivers, it's really we as humans need rivers, and we often don't think about them because um, we take them for granted. So on the Great Plains there, <clears throat> the rivers and their band of riparian, that is riverside cottonwoods, are places that are one of the main features on the landscape. It's where people go to hunt deer and turkeys and have picnics in the shade. And hmm. those things might seem like minor things, but when it's gone— and you lose the cottonwoods, the water sinks below, and you lose even the trees. Um, you know, I, I take took my classes out to talk to the farmers about the pumping and uh, to sample fish and try to understand what it would take to conserve them. And I began to realize that for the farmers, they homes their grandparents homesteaded in these places, and they they love that land. So um, they're just beginning to realize what it means to lose a river. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Kurt Fausch. He is a stream ecologist and professor emeritus at Colorado State University. And he's looking at uh, the rather frightening link between the drying up of the Ogallala Aquifer that is deep under the plains and the commensurate drying up of streams and rivers in the area. And uh, you mentioned there... The farmers, I want to go back to, to Rod Lenz, the farmer we heard from earlier. Uh, he wants to do more to conserve water, to preserve eventually the rural way of life. And he says it's undeniable that without water, the land will support many fewer families. We know that water is our lifeblood, but it's taken a while to create a mindset that we do have to act and that we are willing to act because any actions we take will directly affect our potential for production. And that is a very bitter pill to swallow, but we've come to the realization that either you affect it yourself or nature or depletions will affect it. They are using technological advances on farms in his area. Uh, but more than that, Lenz says a lot of land, 25 to 35,000 acres, has been taken out of production. 
Uh, they used to grow corn, sugar beets, beans. Len says conservation groups in the USDA have paid some farmers to essentially give up their water rights, and then sometimes those farmers can keep growing less thirsty crops. Uh, there are other efforts as well, and you did indeed talk to a lot of farmers in Colorado doing this research. I understand that you've showed them aerial images of these streams drying up in connection with the aquifer. What's that been like to show farmers and ranchers these sort of before and afters, you know? Yes, I think that's something that we didn't anticipate, but uh, a farmer farms his own farm. He talks to his neighbors. He knows where they used to have water and it's drying up. But there's something about showing a Google Earth image and and having it sort of ratchet down month by month through the summer that that really grabs people's attention. Uh, but I think that's um, the farmer that you spoke to is is that's really the the nexus where um, this change will happen and uh, important things can be done. Agriculture uses a lot of water. We need to grow the food for more than seven billion people, but um, that also means a great opportunity in that. They're already working on conservation efforts, ways of running the crop circles so they apply only as much water as they need. And one of the farmers that we spoke to mentioned last time, I mean, you mentioned the technology that they use, and he was talking about the potential to perhaps use drip tape, meaning uh, burying a tape underground, having a machine that can do that. That would save a tremendous amount of water compared to sprinkling it on the surface, even as efficient as they've become with that. So wait, say more about really, that dri- drip tape. I've never heard of this. Yeah, it's apparently used in Israel. Uh, it it obviously would take development. It's uh, perhaps more expensive than what they're using now. But imagine being able to use drip irrigation. So again, I'm not an agronomist. Yes, <laughs> uh, that's something that I've heard. But that would save a lot of water, and you might be able to have both rivers and agriculture. Um, or at least a better situation for the future. So, Kurt Fausch, I, I, not knowing how aquifers work, can can they fill back up? Well, um, that's going to take a very long time. Yes, if we st- <laughs> we asked, uh, we worked with hydrologists here at CSU and ag irrigation specialists. This was definitely a group effort. Our earlier research on the Rickery, and we asked uh, Deanna Dernford, professor here. How much would we have to reduce pumping in the Rickery Basin to keep the habitat, keep the piece of river that we have left hmm. um, for the fish? And she said, well, that's actually a pretty easy calculation. And the number came up that you would have to reduce pumping by 75%. And so that seemed like a daunting amount. That would put, you know, three quarters of the farmers out of business at, at present. And that's it just, just seemed- to maintain what's there. That's not to grow it back. That's right. My so goodness. That, okay. The point is that it will be a long, long time um, to try to get things to come back. But what surprised me is that uh, people we work with with the Nature Conservancy out there and the farmers took that number and thought, you know, maybe we could get 30%. You know, maybe we can start working towards it. So just as the farmer you spoke to, I think the realization has come that if you want to have agriculture, communities, and potentially rivers, it's time to to start thinking about those and see where we can go. Sobering, this connection between the Ogallala and what we see on the surface in streams and rivers. Kurt, thanks for being with us. 
Thanks so much. Kurt Fausch is a stream ecologist and professor emeritus at CSU, and he led this study published recently in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It's about the parched Ogallala Aquifer, which supports a huge amount of agriculture on the Great Plains, including in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thirteen Afghan women made history two years ago. They were the first ever to summit a then-unnamed peak nearly 17,000 feet tall in the Panjshir Valley. Danica Gilbert of Ridgeway, Colorado, led the group. She has continued to work with young Afghan women on their mountaineering skills, like hiking up icy mountainsides with crampons. When should you go sideways, and when should you go this way? Uh... If you are okay, you are not tired, Mm -hmm. you can go like this. Okay. If you are tired, you can go like this. The team's first big climb is the subject of a new documentary. It's produced by Vice Impact. That's an advocacy arm of Vice Media, and it screens tonight in Denver. And uh, their coach, their trainer, Danica Gilbert of Ridgeway, is with me. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Altitude and bad weather are not the only obstacles that these women face. What kind of backlash do they face learning to climb mountains, really in a culture that may not think this is acceptable for women? It depends on each of the girls' unique um, situations. Some of the times the biggest backlash comes from within their own families. Uh, All of our team members have to have their father's permission. Um, Some of them it's more looking the other way and pretending like they don't know what the girls are doing. And then other fathers are extremely supportive. But then within the larger family network, you could have aunts and uncles and cousins that don't approve of what the girls are doing. And then in the bigger context, there is the risk that the Taliban or another group could disapprove of what the girls are doing and target them. What would that look like? Or what has that looked like? Um, so far, luckily for our girls, they've not had any direct threats. Um, we did have on the first um, re- first iteration of our team, some of the girls that went on the expedition with me to the Panjshir area, they received a night letter from the Taliban um, threatening them and telling them if they continued that they'd be killed. A night letter? Yeah, the Taliban, they usually call you first, give you a warning verbally over the phone. And then if you continue doing what they think is wrong, then you'll get a letter dropped on your doorstep at night that says, okay, this is official. If you continue, you will be killed. They've had that threat. It has not occurred. It has not occurred. When you got into this, did you know that they would have to have their father's permission? Or is that something you learned along the way? I didn't initially. Um, my first trip over there was a reconnaissance trip to meet the team members, figure out where we were going to climb. And in that trip, I got to meet um, one of the fathers who initially wasn't giving permission to his daughter to participate. And it was a very interesting conversation for me to hear him explain why he didn't think it was a good thing and didn't want his daughter doing it. Why, of all things, mountain climbing for these women? It's Mountain climbing is something that pretty much universally around the world people respect. And it's something that is unique in that, I mean, a lot of the girls play or do taekwondo or some of them are riding bikes and and other things. But mountain climbing universally garners respect from people. It may not be something that people understand and may not think it's really worthwhile doing, but they know it's hard and it's something that is notable. 
respect was important to you? Um, not to me so much as to the girls. Like, I actually don't care so much if the girls reach the summit of a peak. Really, what I'm worried about is and concerned about is watching them grow as individuals and learn the leadership skills that come along with climbing mountains. Last month, uh, President Trump announced that the U.S. would continue uh, and even temporarily build up its military involvement in Afghanistan. How much do the women in your mountain climbing program talk about how the war has affected them? Oh, this every inc- day. It's probably th- gone on for the length of most of their lives. Most of our girls don't know life without war. You know, they've spent their entire lives dealing with, and in the, the everyday situation, it's um, their concern is suicide bombings. And in Kabul, every day they're at risk of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And people leave their houses in Afghanistan truly not knowing if they're going to see their family again. And we talk about it here, but it's, it's a real threat there that they may not go back home that day. And have they revealed stories to you of, of loved ones lost, lost, family members lost? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And after our first, um, we did a, a first aid training for the girls where we worked with them to learn different skills to help them keep themselves safe in the mountain, but then also provide some um, skill to their families. And probably, I think it was probably about five days after our first first aid training, I got a frantic call on Facebook from the girls. They'd been just a few blocks away from a bombing and were trying to decide what they could do to help and how they could triage in the situation. And there were children with you know limbs blown off and that. And I said, nothing, you can't do anything. And helping them navigate that trauma is really difficult. Tell me if I'm off base here, but when when you face those kinds of risks in your daily life, does mountain climbing become not so scary? It It's a different type of fear. For them, they spend so much time around their families and connected and having a support system. And in the mountains, they lose that. And so suddenly they're having to make their own choices, their own decisions, and they miss that security of their families. And then there is the danger of, you know, how, you know, getting hurt in the mountains and it's it's interesting, but it's a different kind it's of different. fear. Yeah. And uh, Danica, it's not one thing to be uh, Afghan. I mean, there are Pashtuns, Tajiks, Uzbeks. And so I, I think about even what it means to have cohesion on a mountain climbing team. Do the teams reflect that ethnic diversity? Do they also reflect ethnic tensions? Absolutely. On this last trip that I came back from, we had a disagreement among our team that very quickly turned into, well, she's saying that because she's Tajik and because I'm Hazara. And and we stopped and I said, you know, look, girls, this is the same tension that is reflected in your country as a whole. So let's see what we can do on the small scale to heal these wounds right here. And there's You know, you're saying that you're upset about one thing, but what I'm hearing is something much deeper. So let's sit down. Let's work through this. Let's talk and really air these differences and work and get to the bottom of this. Does it work? It did. um, Part of uh, the Ascend program is not just the mountain climbing. We teach the girls and they learn leadership skills with some partners that we have. The nonprofit you work with is called Ascend Leadership Through Athletics. Yes. Yeah. And we partner with a couple other companies in Kabul to help the girls learn communication skills and we sat down and the girls worked back and forth using a, a 
method to really listen to each other and really hear each other. And they were able to, to work to the bottom of the problem and realize that it wasn't because one was Tajik or one was Hazara. And it's been really cool to watch the families come together, too. You know, we have groups of families that you know, strictly Pashtun that would never be in a room with Hazara family. And these fathers are getting to be friends and talk to each other and united around each other. And it's really wonderful to see. So you were on the program about two years ago when you led that first ascent uh, up an unnamed peak in Afghanistan. And I I wonder what change you have noticed in the women in the two years since. Mm, It's been tremendous. The level of confidence that they have now is beyond what I could have hoped for from what I thought would happen two years ago. How does that manifest in their lives? Is it that they seek careers or education or positions of leadership or what? Absolutely. Several of our girls have gone on to jobs where they are working. One of them's working covering sports for one of the major television stations in Afghanistan. And then several girls have gotten positions that were created for them where they're teaching sports to other young women. It's really astounding to see. And it's a nice change. On more recent trips, uh, you took the team to train and climb in an Afghan province that you hadn't been to before, I think called Bamyan. Mm-hmm. Is that right? And you've described it as a completely different uh, place in Afghanistan, not so much because of the geography, which like so much of Afghanistan is mountainous, but because of the overall mood of the mm-hmm. people living there. Explain what you saw in Bamyan. Yeah, and Bamiyan, I'd been to Panjshir before, and Panjshir um, withstood a lot of the war. There was a lot of fighting, and the people of Panjshir kept out the Taliban and even the Russians before that, but there's a lot of tension there. In Bamiyan, the Taliban came in, they blew up the Buddha statues, and there was some war there, but not the extensiveness. And what I saw there was people more relaxed. Um, they were having fun, laughing. We actually saw a group, of a family group, in the mountains with about 10 people, and half of them were women and girls. And they were having fun and skipping and, you know, playing in the, in the mountains and collecting medicinal plants. And I you, hadn't You were seen surprised it by else. joy, it sounds oh, like. Oh, yeah. Just joy was surprising to you in Afghanistan. Yeah. And seeing people that were more relaxed. We had one day at the end where we got to go where a lot of Afghans go on holiday, And to see Afghans vacationing in their own country and laughing and playing was just tremendous for me and the girls. A lot of our girls would have never seen that without our program. And the girls, say say more about that. Yeah, our girls right now, we have a, a group that the youngest is 15, the oldest is 24, and they range from very poor families to moderately, um, you know, income families. But most of our girls... Uh, don't have a whole lot of opportunity for work outside of, you know, going to school or something. And they're, that's changing. They're getting more education. They're getting more confidence. One of the girls right now is uh, decided she comes from a very poor family, and there was no way she was going to go to school before our program. And now she has the confidence to try to figure it out. She just decided she wants to go to business school and is enrolled. And we're very proud of her. I wonder if having asked their fathers. Uh, for permission to have them climb is an opening so that their fathers see more of a future for them, that maybe then the request to go to school or to have a career becomes a bit easier because you've broken that open with the mountain climbing conversation. Yeah, and and definitely, uh, you know, the... The fathers are seeing shifts in their girls where they're more happy, um, more joyful, more 
more pleasant to have around them. And that affects the fathers as well, Gives it allows them the girls to have more permission. And then this one girl I was talking about, her father, she went home to talk to him. She's 19, and he told her that she needed to marry at 19. She doesn't want to yet. And he said, look, if they believe in you and that you could go to university, then I believe in you, so I'll support you. Wow. And so he's not expecting her to marry at 19. He's not. He's going to let her go to school. Okay. You've set your sights on Mount Noshok, correct? Mm-hmm. At more than 24,000 <laughs> feet. Gosh, that makes a 14er seem insignificant. It's the highest peak in Afghanistan. And uh, you had hoped to hike it two years ago with the first group of Afghan women. But you had to abandon those plans after threats from the Taliban. Uh, why has this been such an important goal? For the girls, it's really significant. There has been no Afghan woman who's ever even attempted no shock. There's been two Afghan men who have summited it at this peak. And for them, it means a huge amount to be able to stand on top of that peak and say, Afghan women can do anything they put their minds to doing. And we're capable of achieving whatever dream we have. It's significantly higher than that peak we talked to you about last time, 17,000. Feet. So 24,000 is no shock. 17 is what you last did. How, how does the training look for something like that? It's difficult. I would love to be able to bring them other places, bring them to the United States. They take them to Aconcagua and get them the elevation experience that they need. But I can't really do it. And there aren't a lot of places in Afghanistan I can take them. So That makes it tough. It makes it really tough. What we're hoping for is the girls can condition as well as they can. And then we'll do a slow acclimatization plan as we go into the mountain. But it's going to be extremely challenging for them. I think you said at the beginning that it doesn't matter so much to you that they summit so much as they try. I suppose that's the case with Mount Noshok? That is the case. I know that the girls are going to be absolutely determined to get to the summit. And I hope that we'll be able to get a few of them there. But I want to make sure that along that journey that the teamwork, the cohesion that they have continues. Do you want to bring them to Colorado at some point? And do you think that would be possible? You've talked about the obstacles to doing so. I would absolutely love to, but it's extremely difficult for a young, single Afghan woman to get a visa to the United States because unfortunately and understandably, most people who get a visa to the the United States like that will stay and, and overstay their visa. Um, I, we did have um, one Afghan male that I was able to bring over here and train and and that was a great experience for him. And he did go back to Afghanistan. But getting a visa for the girls is virtually impossible. They want to come here. I oh, yeah. 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 I am starting a program, which I'm pretty excited about, in Asia, where they're going to be able to come with me on treks to learn and climb peaks in, in other Asian countries. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. That's Ridgeway Mountaineer Danica Gilbert, who works with the nonprofit Ascend Leadership Through Athletics. She teaches Afghan women to climb mountains, and they're the subject of a new documentary from Vice Media that screens tonight at the Alamo Draft House in Denver. You know, we left the studio the other day to sit around a dinner table with Coloradans who have vastly different political views. And our mission was to find common ground, a project we call Breaking Bread. The second episode of it airs Wednesday. Brian Pacini of Denver will be back at our table. We caught up with him the other day at a park near his home, and he told us he continues to struggle with the election of Donald Trump. Politics, we can disagree on a lot of different things. We can have a lot of different views on topics and stuff, but... We shouldn't elect people that are unethical. How can somebody just dismiss kind of their view on ethics and and vote for somebody who's not, in my view, uh, an ethical person is what I have trouble understanding. 
So that's just one of the voices you'll hear along with Trump supporters Wednesday on Breaking Bread from Colorado Matters. And a special guest will also make an appearance. He's a mediator who has worked with Congress to find common ground. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us.